My mom did just fine in the kitchen. Though she had a limited repertoire, and the only spices she owned were salt, pepper, paprika, garlic powder, and cinnamon, what she cooked, she cooked very well. So it wasn't her fault that I was a picky eater. Maybe you're sort of tired of eating the same old thing day after day. Maybe you'd like to try something different, something delicious, something with a marvelous flavor that just knocks the spots off any other cereal you've ever tried. Now, if that's the case, why don't you ask your mother to let you have a big bowl of crackly, crunchy, golden brown Wheaties flakes tomorrow morning? Ask your How picky, you ask? So picky that I only grew to be 5'2". Just kidding. Okay. I was so picky, I hated oatmeal. Too wet. For breakfast, I'd only eat dry cereal. And by dry, that meant no milk could touch a single frosted flake or the whole bowl would be contaminated. Most kids love pizza. The cheesier, the better. But I'd only eat the unadulterated outer edges of the crust. I refused to eat bananas, apples, or any fruit with lots of juice, such as peaches, plums, or nectarines though oranges and grapefruits were perfectly fine with me. Go figure. Canned tuna was okay. Canned salmon? No way! I'm sure there were times Mom fantasized about what it would be like to have a family who appreciated all of her clipped recipes from Woman's Day magazine. But my dad was raised by a mom whose special meal was boiled chicken without salt, so what did he know? And my brothers don't even get me started. One puts ketchup on pasta, and the other thinks eggplant is toxic. As someone who loves to cook and now eats all kinds of international cuisines, I totally understand my mom's frustration. Parents nurture. It's what we do. And food is our most obvious way of nurturing our kids. Eat, eat. But what do you do when your child refuses your food? That's got to feel like rejection, not of the cream spinach, but of you. And don't believe for a minute that kids don't realize that a hurt parent who may also be a little anxious that little Emily isn't getting her full spectrum of nutrition, is also a highly manipulatable parent. Oh, she doesn't want the scrambled eggs. Okay, okay, I'll make you pancakes. What? The pancakes are too gooey? Too chewy? Too round? No worries, sweetie pie. I'll just dump these and make you some cinnamon French toast. Pressed flat and super dry, just the way you like it. Got a picky eater at your table? Pull up a chair, pour yourself a cup of coffee, and maybe a blueberry muffin to go with it. Let's talk about kids and food. I'm Annie Fox, and this is Family Confidential, Secrets of Successful Parenting. Today's show, Sweetheart, Eat Your Peas. My guest today is Matthew Amster Burton, author of Hungry Monkey, A Food-Loving Father's Quest to Raise an Adventurous Eater. Matthew's a food writer based in Seattle. He writes frequently for Gourmet.com, Cullinate, Seattle Magazine, and the Seattle Times. He's been featured repeatedly in the Best Food Writing Anthology. Hungry Monkey chronicles the early years of his daughter Iris's life as documented through the lens of their ongoing cooking and eating adventures and misadventures. 
Welcome, Matthew. Thanks for having me. Oh, my pleasure. And I want to thank you very much for sharing all the wonderful times you and Iris obviously had in the kitchen over the last four and a half years. Am I correct? She's now six. Oh, my God. So at the time at the time the book came out, yes, it was four and a half years, and now uh, the the, uh, the paperback will be out uh, very soon, or possibly out by the time you're listening to this. And Iris is six years old. It's amazing. Six years old. She basically doesn't need me for anything anymore, <laughs> or so she thinks. Do you let her near the stove now? I haven't really. I still let her near the electric frying pan. I tell the story in the book that we have, uh, I got a cheap electric frying pan to be her stove. And I got that idea from Molly Katzen. And the idea is instead of bringing Iris up to the level of the stove where she could like pitch face first into a saucepan, um, bring the stove down to her level so we can cook on the kitchen floor and make a mess. And uh, Iris could kind of have some ownership like, you know, hey, dad, get away from my stove and that sort of thing. It's really fun. Well, I just love the idea of bringing kids into the kitchen from a very young age and teaching them about food. This is something that we did with our kids. Both of them are grown up now. And I think that early appreciation of food has really manifested itself in the choices they make now, the kind of exotic foods, the things they're open to, not just in food, interestingly enough, but in life and travel and all those kinds of things that I think are what make people interesting. That's great. I like to say that food is probably um, the most adventurous part of my life. I don't snowboard. Uh, I don't climb mountains. That um, wasn't and, you on the Olympics last night? <laughs> well, uh, yes, yes. That, uh, that, that was the exception. But uh, <laughs> other than, than that, I, I sort of hope Iris will take after me because if her thing is eating weird foods, that I don't have to be worried that she's going to fall off a mountain. <laughs> so uh, in that sense, I would love it if she followed in my footsteps. So I was interested in reading that you were a self-proclaimed picky eater as a child. Not just self-proclaimed, but parent-proclaimed big time. <laughs> I was much more picky than Iris has ever been. I basically, you know, I would eat pizza. I would eat a burger. I would eat plain roast chicken, white meat only. And that went on for like six years. Uh. <laughs> it drove my mother insane. I'm sure. Did your mom enjoy cooking? Um, I don't think she enjoyed it a whole lot during that period. <laughs> And who can blame her? I wouldn't like to have dealt with me. No, really, that is so frustrating for a parent. You know, we're all about nurturing. Yeah. We're all about giving our kids what they need to grow, sustenance. And there's a kid turning up their nose and saying, it's not plain cheese pizza. I won't eat it. Yeah. And if, uh, I mean, if you're like me and you're a professional food writer, there's another layer of neurosis on top of that, which is that I'm a professional in this business. I'm supposed to be good at this and, uh, and still you hate it. What's wrong with me? <laughs> so how did your mom solve the problem or didn't she? She didn't. What solved the problem was peer pressure. When I was in sixth grade, I made a new best friend named Alex and his mom was from Japan. And I would go over to Alex's house and, you know, I wanted Alex to like me. I wanted to, uh, I wanted to see what his world was all about. And his mom would make homemade pot stickers. She would make Japanese curry. She would make fish. Mm. And because it was all <laughs> served at Alex's house and my mom wasn't looking over my shoulder, I loved all these things. And then uh, I did the most annoying thing possible, which was I went home and said to my mom, how come you never make fish? How come you never make pot stickers? And my mom looked at me like, you are so in trouble. <laughs> well, here's an interesting question that you just brought up. You said, it sounds like you felt freer to be more adventurous because your mom wasn't looking over your shoulder. Oh, yeah. So how much of this picky eater thing do you think is a power play? I think most of it. Mm. I think it's a combination of things. I think kids really do vary in uh, how scary they find new foods. On a scale of one to 10, I would give Iris like a five. Mm -hmm. She's like right in the middle. Half of her friends are more picky. Half of her friends are less picky. And for me, I was way, way higher on the, on the scale. And for kids who are really picky, 
trying a new food is genuinely terrifying in the same way that if you told me I had to climb a mountain, I would find that terrifying. Really? Um, really? What? Yeah, I think so. Uh-huh. It's a texture issue. It's just like, this might be a terrible experience for me. And, and I remember having this experience. Like I grew up in Portland and I went on a class trip to Seattle in fourth grade and we had to try sushi. And I remember vividly putting this piece of sushi in my mouth and I literally wanted to die. And I love sushi now, I I hasten to add. Which kind of goes to my point, which is the only real cure for picky eating is waiting and getting out of the way, I think. For me, like going to Alex's house was a transforming experience that opened up my palate, making more friends in high school. And then especially when I went off to college and my parents were nowhere nearby at all and did not care, couldn't tell what I was eating. And there was a wide variety of mediocre, but still a wide variety of food available in the dorm. And I could eat whatever I wanted for the first time. Now, I read on your backflip that in addition to being a food writer in Seattle and a published author, you are also a world-class expert on child development. And so I'm going to ask (laughs) you, (laughs) how should a parent deal with a picky eater? Obviously, not turn it into a battlefield. But we all worry about how much nutrition our kids are getting. So what do you do? I think the first thing is to is to try and de-escalate the worry about the nutrition aspect because picky eating has been pretty well studied and it's uh, it's not really a nutrition problem. Really? Kids who, who are picky eaters, you know, they're really easy to identify. They don't eat a lot of different things, but they grow just as well as kids who aren't picky eaters. If you look at uh, like their overall nutrient composition, it's pretty close. Hmm. But that doesn't really help if, you know, you can say, okay, it's not a health problem, but it's still really, really annoying to deal with. But at least we're taking the worry part out of it. Right. Although there's still plenty of worry associated with, is my kid going to eat the dinner that I worked hard to make or not? That's true. The only way that I've been able to approach that is try and forge a middle ground where I wouldn't be doing the short order cooking, Mm. but I wouldn't be eating toddler food myself all the time. And that means serving side dishes that Iris might or might not like, particularly green things. And uh, that, uh, you know, Lori, my wife and I uh, love vegetables and I cook them every day. And sometimes Iris eats them and usually not, but it's right there if she wants to dive in. And making uh, kind of versions of classic kid foods. Like I like to make homemade pizza and I like to make spaghetti and meatballs. And I try and do these things in a way that has little tweaks that make me and uh, and my wife happy uh, as well as Iris. So for example, my meatball recipe has some um, spinach and chicken thighs ground together and it's really easy. I tried that recipe. Oh, you did? Oh, How did you like it? I loved it. It's one of my favorites. The spinach was great in the meatballs. I said, this, this rocks. And and so, in effect, you're saying, okay, you love meatballs and... Right. Did she ever say, what's this green stuff in No, here? She, she hasn't. I, I think kids love to put things in categories. Iris is pretty good about not doing, there's green bits on this, I won't eat it, although she certainly has done that sometimes. Once she sees a meatball it doesn't really matter what's in it. That for her is a meatball and she likes meatballs. The same thing is even more true of uh, any kind of dumpling. Iris's favorite food, period, is Chinese dumplings mm-hmm. and uh, pot stickers, And I make them. They've got covers on right. them, right? You can't really see what's inside. Yeah, but she knows what's inside because she loves to help make them. And she knows there's bok choy in there. And she and she loves, uh, you know, she helps me out with almost every step of the process. I've made them without bok choy and she liked them less. But she would never, ever eat bok choy by itself. Right. Yeah, same stuff, same seasonings. If it's not inside a dumpling wrapper, it's not food. So you're of the school that we have to be very creative and maybe a little deceptive, but the idea of 
having kids categorize things is intriguing to me. It's not a vegetable. Look, it's now round and brown and it and it lives in some sauce here. So it's not a vegetable. Right, exactly. I don't think of it as deceptive because Iris really knows what's in there. Yeah, that's true. I didn't say, hey, look at this great meatball and you know, don't look behind the curtain at uh, the <laughs> wizard of dad here. Uh, you know, she, she saw me make the whole thing and she loved it. <laughs> that's great. I think that kids, part of the adventure is picking up our sense of adventure about things. Yes. And that's that's something that I definitely loved about reading your book. It's because your attitude about food and different cuisines and ingredients is so open and so infectious that I wanted to come into your kitchen and cook with you. Oh, thank you. <laughs> so you're, I can't, you're welcome anytime. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. I can't imagine that your own daughter, who obviously loves to be with you, would not want to participate in something that gives you so much joy. And most of the time, that is true. Also, every kid at some time or another will notice this thing gives my parent a lot of joy. Therefore, I will steadfastly refuse to participate in it at this moment. Yeah, especially as they move towards middle school. Oh, my gosh. You want me to give you a hug? No. (laughs) Iris is already expert at all of those things. I don't know what she's going to learn in middle school because she already has it wrapped up. She seems pretty smart. Uh, (laughs) I'm going to ask you now, if you wouldn't mind, to please read an excerpt from this wonderful book. Sure, I'd be happy to. Which, by the way, folks who are listening, is chocked filled with kid-friendly recipes and with a role for the kid to play in preparing all these wonderfully delicious things. Okay, Matthew, take it away. I'm not anti-dessert, but if Iris knows dessert is coming after dinner, she's likely to say, okay, I'm full after two bites of enchilada. I find this puzzling because as much as I like sweets, I crave salty and fatty things even more, and I would never pass up another enchilada no matter how alluring the siren song of tartlets in the oven. I could try to make dessert a surprise and admit its existence only after the enchiladas are depleted, but it's hard to fool a four-year-old. So we have dessert in the afternoon. If we bake cookies, brownies, or cupcakes, it gives us something to do after lunch besides watching TV. Often we'll do milkshakes or malts, which are even nutritious since they're full of milk. Berries and whipped cream are always a hit, although fresh berries make a painfully brief appearance each summer in Seattle especially strawberries, which are good for a month at best. I won't buy strawberries from California, not because I'm a dogmatic locavore, but because strawberries from California suck. (laughs) Well, as a Californian (laughs) who grows strawberries, not for public consumption, but for our own, I want to know why you think that. (laughs) Because the ones that can survive a trip from California to Seattle on a truck... Those are no good. Oh. I have had wonderful, freshly grown, fully ripe strawberries in California. I used to live in California. Wonderful produce. It's just the ones you send us. That's really interesting. So then would you generalize that in terms of all fresh produce that comes from somewhere else? I wouldn't go that far. Strawberries are super delicate and mm. they will turn into a truck full of slurry if, uh, <laughs> if you tried to ship really ripe strawberries. Other things like not apples since we grow all the apples here in Washington. I'm thinking grapes. How about grapes? I like imported grapes okay. Mm -hmm. They travel pretty well. Yeah, we grow a small amount of really good local grapes in Washington, but it's a really small amount, not enough to satisfy my personal demand for grapes. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we don't grow any citrus at all in Washington. And I certainly love lemons and limes and oranges, and I eat them all the time. And uh, many of them come from California. Okay, you're off the hook. Am am I off the hook yet? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I agree with you that strawberries have a very, very short shelf life. And it's disappointing when you look at them and you go, oh, these are great. And if you haven't gobbled them all that first day, then 
not so good. Brown spots, weird white stuff growing on them that's not supposed to be there. And it's like, right. If you get to the end of the first day, that's when I make freezer jam. Can you tell us about that? Freezer jam is really, it's the simplest possible jam. And it's called freezer jam because you have to store it in the freezer if you want to store it for a while. It's not pressure canned. Mm-hmm. It's basically uh, you mix pectin and sugar and strawberries and mash them together and you have freezer jam. That's it. You can eat the jam like a minute after deciding to make jam. And then when you freeze it, do you freeze it in small enough containers that you don't have to defrost the entire thing the next time you want to have some? Yes. They sell at my supermarket and I assume at all big supermarkets, freezer cans, they call them ball freezer jars. Mm. They're really um, just a plastic Rubbermaid container with a screw on top so they can't leak. And they're about a one cup size. I use them for all kinds of things, not just jam. Okay. I want to talk about the, um, was it one or two week period where you were the snack dad? Oh, yes. I loved it. You willingly volunteered for this, didn't you? Well, every parent at Iris's preschool was on the hook for at least two weeks of providing snacks to the entire class of uh, like a dozen, dozen and a half, four or five-year-olds. And before you took the leadership role here, what were some of the typical snacks that Iris would report to you that other parents made? There was veggie booty. There was go-gurt. Yeah, excuse me. Can you explain what that is to my listeners? <laughs> that's, that's, I forgot. I forgot. Every, everyone with a, with a young child has experienced veggie booty. And if, if you've missed out on veggie booty, luck you. It's this like fake popcorn made from, uh, I, th- I think it's puffed corn and rice, and then dredged in this green powder, which is made from dehydrated spinach and kale. <laughs> the reason veggie booty exists is for worried parents to get some vegetables into their kids by feeding them large amounts of this snack food. And I and Iris love veggie booty as much as any kid. It's a snack food. Veggie booty. News to me. <laughs> yes, you missed out on the veggie booty era. I, I did, totally. You're so lucky. Yeah. So people would bring this, but that wasn't making a snack that's opening a bag. Right. That was neither encouraged nor discouraged. But the other parents, they knew what my job was. And I I felt a certain amount of unhealthy competition about the whole thing and allowed myself to get pretty much totally carried away with the preschool snack. <laughs> and so I was I was getting up at like five o'clock in the morning to make empanadas. <laughs> I would make like a meat version and a vegetarian version, which was extremely silly because um, no kid wanted the vegetarian version of anything. I went into class actually to make Iris's favorite Chinese pot stickers one day. Were there serving instructions for the things that you sent in that you weren't there to serve? Well, I tried to make it all very clearly like individual serving items like the serving instructions is put this in front of the kid and hopefully they'll eat it. I don't think I had to do anything that required special silverware. You know, you have to use this fork for the... um, Nothing like that. Okay, so Mr. Restaurant Reviewer, what (laughs) kind of reviews did you get from the preschoolers? Well, I got mixed reviews. The empanadas were quite popular. The vegetarian anything was not popular. When I made the dumplings, I made Iris's favorites, which had uh, bok choy in them. And a lot of kids noticed that there was something green inside the dumplings. (laughs) Oh, dear. (laughs) And that there were some incidents. Should have brought blindfolds with the dessert. Right, exactly. (laughs) You know, I saw a kid like nibble right around the circumference of the dumpling and stop there. And they had this system at Iris's preschool called the empty napkin, which to me is it was like incredibly ominous sounding. If you didn't want to eat something, you could put it on the empty napkin in the <laughs> middle of the table. I saw a few of my dumplings go onto the empty napkin. They were unchewed, right? Right. <laughs> okay. I hope. <laughs> but overall, 
you think they would be happy if you volunteered to do this for another two-week stint? I did it actually um, after the book was published. I did it again the following year and did many of the same things. And it went very well. I made a lot of muffins. I don't want to make out like everything I did was something challenging or very labor-intensive. I can put together some muffins in about an hour in the morning. So I made a lot of homemade muffins. I made uh, blueberry muffins and pumpkin muffins and banana muffins and gingerbread muffins. And, oh, uh, yum. <laughs> so now that Iris is in first grade? She's in kindergarten. Oh, she's in kindergarten. Okay. but She just turned six. What have you noticed in terms of her level of adventurousness? Can you currently report versus, you know, when she was at her most picky? Or does the kind of, I love this today, but no, I don't want to eat that. And that switches. And so it's a moving target. It is still a moving target. Definitely. Okay. Um, she is currently definitely less picky than she was when she was, say, three and a half. To kind of capitalize on the moment, although by luck, because we've been planning it for a long time, Iris and I are taking a trip to Japan next month that we have been saving for and planning for for three years. How exciting. And so we are we are going to try out many of our favorite foods on their home turf. Mm-hmm. But I've noticed that Iris's likes and dislikes and her pickiness level tend to vary along with whether she's growing right now. Because, you know, kids, uh, I, I didn't understand this until I had a kid of my own. You know, I'd heard of growth spurts, but had not seen it myself. Sometimes kids are not growing at all. And sometimes they're growing like an inch in front of your eyes. And when they're not growing, they don't need much food at all. And when they are growing, Iris sometimes will just eat like a horse. And uh, when she's that hungry because uh, she's putting on height, then uh, she can't really afford to be picky. If there's food nearby, she will eat the food. Just scarf it down. Right. So the fact is that as your kids are moving towards middle school and into the teen years, as many of my listeners' children are, if they're picky now, they may become less picky. So you have that to look forward to. Yeah, I I think so. I can't, uh, (laughs) there's no money back guarantee on that statement, but... uh, Wait a minute. (laughs) (laughs) It sounds like it makes sense. If you're starving, you're not so picky. I was just going to ask you about chocolate. Because that is my favorite food group, and um, you do talk about it a bit. I love chocolate, and Iris loves chocolate, and uh, we don't always love the same chocolate. We both, I think we both share the same philosophy about chocolate, which is any chocolate is better than no chocolate. (laughs) You're here. (laughs) I like, you know, the fancy bittersweet chocolate, uh, like the the Valrona 70% is my favorite bar most of the time. And Iris will eat that and will tolerate that. But we did a chocolate tasting one day for, uh, we needed something to do in the afternoon. So I got like five different chocolate bars, uh, ranging from the Valrona to uh, the Hershey's Milk Chocolate and Hershey's Special Dark. And the Hershey's Milk Chocolate was Iris's favorite and probably still would be Iris's favorite. Well, because it's very sweet. It's very sweet. It's totally soft and melty and inoffensive. Okay, and I had a thought before we went on the air here that you guys, you and Iris, should actually get on Food Network and do your own show. (laughs) Have you thought of this? Uh, I have thought about that only in in pure fantasy mode. I think our shtick would run thin pretty quickly. Not so. I mean, your adventures in this book are endless. And the idea of encouraging parents and kids to watch together, where it's like, whoa, look at that dad and his little girl. They're sure having a lot of fun. Let's do that. I think inevitably there would be something where I yelled at her off camera and it would go up on YouTube and my reputation would be completely ruined. So that's the reason we haven't done it. Not because they haven't asked. Uh. Okay. Okay. They haven't asked. It wouldn't be live. You could cut that bit (laughs) and come back and everybody's all remade up and just like, oh, well, here we are back again. Wasn't that fun? So she spilled that all over the floor. But (laughs) hey, what is the most interesting mishap? 
that Iris has perpetrated in your kitchen? Well, when we first started playing around with um, with Iris's little frying pan, like the second time we used it, I think she burned herself. And, mm. you know, she had her oven mitt and she had her little spatula. I think we were making pancakes. And when she burned herself on the side of the frying pan, I had the most complex series of emotions probably ever, which went kind of like, oh, no, my child burned herself. But good, this way she'll learn to be more careful next time. But I, now I feel guilty <laughs> for feeling that it's okay that she burned herself. And uh, so it was... Uh, <laughs> All in a flash, right? <laughs> All of this happened in, in the space of two seconds. And then she cried for half a minute and then got over it and started laughing at that she had put eggs on the floor and gotten away with it and it all turned out okay and she did learn to be more careful around the edge of the frying pan huh? yeah she has not burned herself since on ah, the frying pan okay so we won't recommend that you encourage your child to burn herself or himself but no. uh, if it happens there is a life lesson to be learned here yes um matthew i want to thank you so much for writing this book and bringing the joy from your kitchen and your home into the hands of other people who might be a little reluctant to share these kinds of life experiences with their kids. But, you know, food is life, right? Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me on the show. It's been really fun. <laughs> My guest today has been Matthew Amster Burton, his book, Hungry Monkey, A Food-Loving Father's Quest to Raise an Adventurous Eater. And Matthew, before you go, can you please tell us where we could get more information about you, your blog, anything else you want to tell us about? Absolutely. You can find out more about the book at HungryMonkeyBook.com. My blog is RootsAndGrubs.com. And the project that I'm most excited about right now is I'm doing a comedy and food podcast with my friend Molly Weisenberg of Orange Jet, and it is called Spilled Milk. You can find it on iTunes or at SpilledMilkPodcast.com. I will definitely check it out. Thanks so much. And say hi to Iris for me. I will. Thank you. Bye-bye. <laughs> Bye. This is Annie Fox for Family Confidential. To learn more about my work with tweens, teens, and parents, visit AnnieFox.com. And tune in next time when my guest will be Salome Thomas L., also known as Principal L., author of The Immortality of Influence. Till then, happy parenting! <laughs>